This is John chapter 8 and verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you're bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I'm going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. But no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself? Since he says, where I am going, you cannot come. He said to them, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. We pick up our reading again in John chapter 8 at verse 39. The answer, Jesus, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abram's children, you would be doing the works Abram did. But now you seek to kill me, 
a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abram did. You were doing the works your father did. They said to him, We were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, If you were your father, you would love me. But uh, you would love me, for I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my words. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning, and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell you the truth, why do you not believe? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason you do not hear them is that you are not of God. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my words, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, If anyone keeps my word, it, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died, and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Our Father in heaven, please would your Son, the light of the world, shed light into our hearts by your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we've got a long reading to consider, two long readings to consider this morning, so we're going to dive straight in. But I want you to listen up carefully, because you will have heard some of the most stark, shocking words that Jesus said, and some of the most heartwarming Wonderful words that Jesus said in that reading. So blunt and stark are some of these words that I imagine this is the passage 
that will get a preacher arrested at some point. In some of those countries we prayed for, this is the passage that proclaimed clearly in a public place would get a far more violent reaction than arrest. Maybe you think I'm being a bit melodramatic, but did you notice how the reading ended? So back on page 895, verse 59, the end of Jesus' sermon, they picked up stones to throw at him, to kill him. They were trying to kill him. But the strange thing is, where the sermon starts is such a wonderful, wonderful thing. Verse 12, did you get that? Chapter 8, verse 12, one of the famous things Jesus said. And it's wonderful. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I'm the light of the world. What a wonderful thing that is. In a world that you may feel increasingly dark, where death looms in our headlines, some of us close to home in our lives, Jesus says, I'm the light of the world and the light of life. A wonderful place to start. And yet, by the end, this this highly religious crowd are resorting to mob violence. So indignant, so incensed are they at what Jesus has said. So what makes them so angry? Well, we're going to dive straight into point one. You'll see an outline on the back of the service sheet if you want to follow through. The claim of Jesus is, I am the light of the world. And it's not the first time in John's Gospel we've heard that Jesus is the light. And so this, this eyewitness account of Jesus starts with spoilers. Right in the prologue, John, the eyewitness writer, says things like this. In the beginning was the Word. This is talking about Jesus. The Word was with God. The Word was God. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. The darkness has not overcome it. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. So right at the start, John introduced Jesus as the light. The light who can give life, who can make God known. John gave us spoilers, but this is the moment when Jesus himself stood up and said, famously, I am the light of the world. He chose this moment, this moment in the temple, at a particular feast in the temple. So we need to get a bit of background to this feast before we can fully understand what Jesus means. The setting is this feast of booths or tabernacles. And we heard about this last time in in chapter 7. We're still in the same place. And the feast of booths going straight on from chapter 7. Just as an aside, you may wonder, why did we skip verses 8, 1 to 11? Sorry, chapter 8, verses 1 to 11. Um, That's just because that section is not in the earliest manuscripts of John's Gospel. You'll see that there's a note in the Bible version, the translation we're using. Don't be thrown by that. Don't be distracted by that. It's actually really encouraging that we have such good manuscript evidence that we know when someone adds a bit to the Gospels and such honest English versions that they tell us. So we're starting at verse 12, and we're running straight on from chapter 7. The Feast of Tabernacles. What was that about, the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles? Well, it was a massive celebration. It was timed at kind of harvest time, collecting the harvest, celebrating God's provision. But it was particularly remembering 
how God led his people out of Egypt, out of slavery, and through the wilderness to the promised land. That's why they made these booths. They were kind of temporary um, shelters, a reminder of the tents that they used to have to live in when they were on the journey. And that's why, as Richard mentioned earlier, there were rituals of water being poured out in the temple grounds, a reminder that God provided water on this journey through the desert. And there were rituals of light. Four massive lamps got lit in the temple courts, and lots of people carried torches. Again, a reminder how God provided light. His presence guided them, a pillar of fire, leading them out of slavery and into life in the promised land. And here we are, we're at this festival of water and light, and last week Jesus stood up and said, if anyone is thirsty, come to me and drink. And this week he stands up and says, I am the light of the world. He's at it again. He's saying, this whole festival points to me. He's offering that same kind of offer. Whoever follows me, will not walk in darkness, but have the light of light. I wonder if we're starting to see why this is an extraordinary claim. For centuries, Israel have been coming together for this feast, looking back to the the time when God provided light to guide them, his presence to rescue them from slavery, to lead them to life. And Jesus stands up, And says, you know what, this year, stop just looking back in the rearview mirror to the Exodus. Come and follow me, the divine presence, the light you need, where it's standing right in front of you. It's an extraordinary thing. Let me put it another way. For centuries, the book of Isaiah had been read in synagogues, just like we've been studying it in Sunday evenings here. And those, these Jewish pilgrims in the temple, well, they would have known God's famous promises that one day the people who walk in darkness will have seen a great light. Or from Isaiah 42 or 49 from our series, uh, there, there will be a servant that God will provide who will be a light to the nation. And Jesus stands up in the temple courts after centuries of sermons on those passages and says, it's me. I am the light of the world. Notice, like Isaiah, he is the light of the whole world, the nations. That is, he's the light for all people that God's made across the globe, every person, every tribe, every tongue. So that's everyone here in this building. It's everyone not in the building. It's every neighbor, every colleague, every family member, every friend. Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. I'm a guiding light for everyone. But what is it that Jesus is offering to guide us to? Did you notice that? The second half of verse 12. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. This is the first part of his claim, part A, on the handout. Jesus is claiming he's a light that can lead people to life, 
And he is talking about eternal life here. And if you flick your eyes across to verse 51, verse 51 of chapter 8, Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. What a promise that is. A light that offers to lead you to eternal life. Life with God. That's not actually to say that Christians never die. Actually, this week, a few of us witnessed the funeral of a godly Christian man, a relative of some of the people in our church family. He still faced cancer. He still faced a physical death. But actually, I'll tell you what, far from that event proving the kind of emptiness of Jesus' words here, actually, that Christian's final days and that Christian's funeral service showed the certainty of this hope that he had and many around him had, the real assurance in the face of failing health. You see, our brother will not stay in the grave. Even now he's with Jesus, and one day he will rise physically to life. I believe in the resurrection, we sang. Why? Because he knew Jesus, and he knew this promise. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he'll never see death. So that's the first part of Jesus' amazing statement. I'm the light of the world, the light that can lead you to life. But there is a second part. You see, when God led his people out of Israel, he didn't just take them to new life, life in the promised land. He also rescued them from slavery, slavery to Pharaoh, to Egypt. So this festival was looking back to, in celebration of a release from oppression, So actually, it's no surprise in verse 31 onwards when Jesus starts to speak in the language of freedom. Have a look at it. He's the light who can lead us to freedom. Verse 31. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples. And if you know the truth, so you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. This light of the world can lead us to freedom as well as light. His words set people free. I think that one's striking because it's the complete opposite of what most people in our culture think about Jesus, isn't it? Most people, I guess if you ask them, to be honest, um, would say, well, he's a killjoy, he's a grumpy head teacher, he's a bit of a prison guard, he's, he's trying to spoil the fun, keep us in line lock us up inside his kind of petty rules and regulations. He is a life killer, a freedom taker. Jesus' own testimony is that he came to set people free, to give true freedom, to enable us to be free, to be what we're made for, to live a fully human life. If you're a Christian, that actually would be a great thing to discuss afterwards with other other friends How is it the words of Jesus set us free? How have we experienced that in our own lives? But actually, we need to carry on because at this point, we might well be wondering, why would anyone get upset at this? You see, that kind of open offer of guidance and light through life, a free offer of eternal life itself, life to the full now, on into eternity, an offer of freedom 
I mean, who's going to get upset at someone freely offering light life freedom? What's wrong with that? How can that be one of the sermons that got Jesus killed? It's a good question. How come people then and now have such a problem with Jesus? Well, I think there are two reasons here that Jesus upsets people. Firstly, he is saying he's the only light that leads us to life. I don't know if you noticed that as we read through. I've put it on the handout, the only light. Because there is a kind of unavoidable exclusivity about Jesus' claim to be the light of the world. Some of us may know a famous verse later in John, John 14, 6, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's an unavoidably exclusive claim. Perhaps for many of us, it's an uncomfortably exclusive claim. Jesus doesn't say, I'm a way, a truth, a life, but the way. And in case we didn't get the point or want to wriggle out of the point, he says, no one comes to the Father except through me. But this week, I've been really struck that that famous verse is actually just a repeat of what he says here. When he says, I am the light of the world. Again, not a light, but if you look around, you'll find lots of lights, lots of alternatives. No, I'm the light. And not I'm the light of just some areas, some cultures, some people who, who favor Christianity out of the religious supermarket, some of the maps you could put, some of the countries you could put on the screen. No, I am the light of the whole world. That's a huge claim, isn't it? It's also a really humbling claim. That's the second reason why people get upset, and I think this is where the anger comes from. It's not just what Jesus is saying about himself, it's what he's saying about us. See, you only need a light if you're actually in darkness. You only need to be set free if you're actually in slavery. I mean, that's right, isn't it? You, you only appreciate a light when you realize that you're walking in darkness. Let me show you that. If I was to turn my phone torch on here, not much impact, I imagine. I can't see from where you are, but there's a lot of light shining at me, so I'm assuming that's not very bright. But actually, I've come to have more appreciation for this little torch since I moved to Scotland and started occasionally walking up hills at night. Turns out, we didn't realize this coming from London with lots of light pollution and not many hills, to be honest, but turns out if you go up Blackford Hill, which Jesse and I did earlier this week after dark, it is actually pretty dark. I once was taken up a hill by Robin in the Braid Hills at night, and it was really dark trying to see um, a black Labrador at night. When I knew on that evening suddenly we were walking in darkness, this pathetic little beam became massively precious. We knew we were liable, liable to stumble, liable to take a wrong turn, potentially even, because we don't know the hill that well, at risk of danger. If you know that, well, having a light to lead the way is extremely good news. But if you don't think you're in darkness, you won't appreciate the torch. Spiritually, we find it very hard to admit it. Just look again at verse 12. Look at the implication. Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. 
Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Implication, if you don't follow him, you're still in the darkness without someone to lead you in the right direction. You're wandering the hills and the footholds of life in darkness, approaching a cliff edge with just no idea it's there. Maybe you think I'm reading a lot in. It's just implicit in verse 12. But have a look at verse 24, where Jesus puts it bluntly, explicitly. Verse 24, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Doesn't get much clearer than that, does it? Jesus is in his love. He's explicit. He says, look, I'm the light of the world, and if you reject me, well then... You've got no one to lead you to life. I told you, you would die in your sins. The background to what Jesus is saying there is something taught all the way through the Bible, which is that as human beings, we're not right with God. We're all actually on a collision course with God when we die because he is perfect, righteous, a pure judge, can't be bribed or bent. We are not right. And so we're all going to be held accountable for every impure thought, unkind word, unrighteous action that we've chosen to do. But such is the darkness of our world, of our hearts. So much do we underestimate God's goodness and overestimate our own that many people don't even realize they need saving, let alone that Jesus can save. I mean, it's a whole lot more serious, isn't it, than will we make it back from Blackford Hill with sprained ankles or not? The question is, will we stumble through life with the lights off? Jesus' question, will we die in our sins? So I wonder if we're starting to see why Jesus' sermon might upset people. It's a huge claim. I'm the only light of the world, the whole world. And it's a humbling claim. Actually, I'm exposing that the world is in darkness. As he puts it later, I can set you free. Which means we're trapped currently. If you want to get a sense of how controversial this could be, I mean, just imagine Jesus Christ standing outside the synagogue up on, near Causeway Side, saying to everyone who comes out, I am the light of the world. Unless you believe that I'm he, you will die in your sins. I guess that's the closest audience to the Jewish audience Jesus is directly addressing here. But actually, he's saying he's the light of the world. So you could pick any venue in Edinburgh or the world. If you wanted the festival atmosphere of here, you could pick Jesus standing up in the middle of the crowds at Mecca and saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. But unless you believe that I am he... You'll die in your sins. Or much closer to home, imagine Jesus visiting every desk in your office or your school, knocking on every door in your street or block and saying, I am the light of the world. My words can set you free, but unless you believe in me, you'll die in your sins. I wonder if we're starting to see what a, what a huge and controversial claim Jesus is making. 
It's why one of the first questions that came back is, is kind of, what's the evidence? <laughs> Who gives you the right to say this? That's what verses 13 to 29 are about. We don't have time this morning to go into them. They're mostly actually recap of what Jesus has been saying all along. Back in chapter 7, there was, there was a big debate about Jesus' origins. People were saying, hang on, he's from Galilee. How could a bloke from Galilee be the Messiah, the saviour of the world? But Jesus' answer, and John's answer, is, is actually not, oh, you got it wrong, he's not from Galilee, he's from Bethlehem. He was born the place the prophets said the saviour would be born. Jesus actually doesn't go there. He says, I am from above. That's the answer to where Jesus has come from. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. So Jesus Christ, unlike any other religious leader, claims to be the light of the world because he is the Son of God. The eternal Son of God stepped down, the one who's come from above. And if he is God actually God himself on the earth. I mean, that does change the dynamic of it, doesn't it? Maybe you were listening to my examples saying, who has the right to stand outside a mosque or a synagogue or Mecca or a hospital or a school and tell people they're in the dark with God unless they come to him? I mean, who has the right? Well, God. God himself come down from above. But nevertheless, the reaction, well, you can see, the reaction from those listening is indignant. So this is our second point, the indignant response of many world religions. Why am I saying world religions? Um, not because I think that uh, atheists or secularists would be quite happy if they were to hear Jesus saying this to them. And I'm sure if Jesus went to the philosophy department or the humanist societies at many of our universities in Edinburgh and said to them, look, folks, I'm the light of the world. For all your learning and intellectual brilliance, unless you come to me, you're fundamentally in darkness. You're going to die in your sins unless you come and listen to me. I'm sure if he said that, they would also be pretty indignant. But actually, from verse 33 onwards... The argument zooms in on being children of Abraham. That's what the discussion goes on to. And so this chapter is particularly challenging to those who are in the great Abrahamic faiths. So that would be Judaism, Islam, sections of Christianity, and various offshoots of Christianity. Jesus was initially addressing Jewish pilgrims in this passage, but, but actually it will challenge anyone who views themselves as kind of in the line of Abraham or children of God. Let's dive in. In verse 30, Jesus gets a, what seems like a good reaction. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. But we've seen before that it's possible to hang out with Jesus for a while or even believe one or two things about him, to like something he says, but not actually to trust him. And so verse 31, Jesus said to the Jews who believed in him, If you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples. And you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Jesus says that the key thing that distinguishes a real follower of Jesus from a fake 
is sticking with his words. It was the same in verse 51, wasn't it? That verse about eternal life. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Which is why this passage will be such a challenge, not just to followers of Judaism or Islam out there, but actually to us in here and to whole sections and churches and individuals who claim to be Christian. Because the key thing for them and for us is will we stick with his words? That's what makes someone truly his disciple. It's what sets us free. And the sad thing is that it's precisely some of Jesus' words that much of the Western church is losing confidence in. Again, it's precisely some of Jesus' words that followers of Islam or Judaism might not accept. For example, his teaching about his identity or his death. Jesus says, my words can set you free. But the indignant reaction around him is, we don't need to be set free by your words. We're already free. We're already fine. We're already guaranteed in God's family because of our connection to Abraham. Did you see that? Verse 33, we are offspring of Abraham, have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it you can say, you will become free. Or verse 39, Abraham is our father. Now, for these Jewish pilgrims, they're speaking about their literal blood descent from Abraham, their bloodline. And Jesus says, verse 37, yeah, I know you're offspring of Abraham in that sense. But here's the thing. Coming from the right family tree, being in the right national grouping, I said this to the students last week at student lunch. Even if your parents are Christian, that won't be what counts. Even belonging to the chosen tribe of Israel is not enough to make you a free child of God. That's actually a shocking thing to say. It is now, it was then. Even more so in the temple. Because the Old Testament was clear. Israel were God's chosen people. But as Paul says in Romans 9, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all who are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. Paul goes to Genesis to prove that. But Jesus proves it by pointing to their lives. You think you're free? Well, just look at your life. He points to the sin in their own lives. Verse 34, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. So many in our world think they're free. Jesus would say, look at your life. Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. What's sin? Well, Jesus, one way Jesus defined it is um, a failure to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, strength and a failure to love our neighbours as ourselves. So then, how many of us, or how many adherents of the various religions of the world, how many of this original crowd could, could honestly say they love God with everything, love others as themselves? We're sinning all the time. That's the darkness we're in. We're not even the people we want to be, let alone what God wants us to be. And without Christ... 
You cannot stop it. We're enslaved. If you don't believe me, well, I set you a challenge. Try and live two weeks, just two weeks, without sinning a single time. No lies, no lust, no pride, no greed, no envy, no selfishness. All positive kindness, patience, sacrificial love. Living like Jesus, two weeks. Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin, says Jesus. Whatever we are by birth, we are trapped in bondage and need a rescue. And that's what Jesus the Son can do, verse 35. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The Son remains forever. So if the Son, that's Jesus, sets you free, you'll be free indeed. But the crowd remain indignant. They're refusing to admit they're in the dark or enslaved. They don't need the light of the world, the sun, to set them free. And so Jesus gets increasingly blunt with them. Verse 39. We'll just read through and I'll comment as we go. Verse 39. Abraham's our father. But Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you'd be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who's told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You're doing the works your father did. How dare you, Jesus, questioning our pedigree, suggesting we're illegitimate children spiritually. They said to him, we're not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Here they're doubling down on the real issue. God is our father. How dare you question our place in God's family? Listen to this, Jesus 42 said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I'm here. I'm, I came not to my own accord, but he sent me. I mean, the logic's hard to avoid, isn't it? Jesus is the true son sent from above. And so how you react to God's son, sent by God the Father, is actually a pretty good sign of how is your relationship with God the Father. But Jesus decides to get blunter still. He says, far from being on God's side, the side of truth, loving the Father who sent the Son, or they're on the other side, the side of lies, the side of death, the side of Satan. Verse 43, why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. You're of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he's a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is you're not of God. How can you be a child of God if you reject the Son of God when he turns up? Now, we don't have time for the rest of the conversation in detail, but the indignation grows and grows. And I wonder if you can see what's happening. Let's step back. This is the light of the world in action. When Jesus calls them and actually everyone who won't accept him children of the devil, that may sound like it's just an outrageous insult. Maybe he just lost it, got massively angry. But he's actually making a reasonable argument, a shocking 
but logical argument. This is the brightness of the light of the world shining and exacting light on their hearts and our hearts naturally. You see, in the courtroom of John's gospel, we are now in the dock. If Jesus is the true Son of God, bringing God's words, well, a rejection of him is a rejection of God. Scary, actually. As humans, we sometimes prefer lies. Lies about ourselves, lies about others. Most scarily, lies about God. And when God keeps speaking, clearly, we prefer violence. Scary. Rather than admit I'm in the dark with God, I'd rather smash the bulb. I'd rather get rid of the light. This is the great claim of John's gospel. The creator came to his own, but his own did not receive him. As he put it, the light in chapter 3, the light has come into the world, but people love darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. And it means in verse 58, when Jesus makes one of his clearest statements of divinity, before Abraham was, I am takes God's name on his lips. The reaction? Throwing stones at him. Get rid of him. I can't bear it. So this passage forces us into a stark choice. Who is Jesus? Is he the the true son, God on earth, in which case he has the light we all need, he has the life we all want? Or Is he completely mad? Do you notice their descriptions of him got worse and worse? You're demon-possessed. Let me put it like this. Is he in the dark? Or are we? That's where this passage leaves us. If you're looking into Christian things, that's the essential question. Is Jesus in the dark? Doesn't know what he's talking about. Crazy, mad, demon-possessed. Or are we in the dark? For those of us who've been Christians, most of us, I guess, Christians, for quite a while, we never actually get beyond that question. Is Jesus in the dark or am I? Remember what Jesus said to people following him, verse 31. If you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples. When Jesus says hard things, and this passage It's full of hard things, he said. Well, will we abide in his word? Will we continue to let the light in to our hearts? Or will we begin to edit his words, just choose the bits we prefer? Is Jesus in the dark, or are we? Lord Jesus, light of the world, would you shine in our hearts? By your spirit. In Jesus' name. Amen.